Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this podcast, we go back just one week to September 12, 2019, when former Secretary of Defense James Mattis came to the Reagan Library to discuss his brand new book, Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. During the program, Secretary Mattis sat down with Reagan Foundation and Institute Board Chairman Fred Ryan to discuss his storied career, from wide-ranging leadership roles in three wars, ultimately commanding a quarter of a million troops across the Middle East. Secretary Mattis shared the lessons he has learned about the nature of warfighting and peacemaking, the importance of allies, and the strategic dilemmas and short-sighted thinking now facing our nation. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming America's 26th Secretary of Defense, General James Mattis. Oh, absolutely. Well deserved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. clapping like that at the end. General, thank you for joining us this evening. As you can see, we have a full house. Um, and there's another event taking place on television tonight. Um, but this is what we call, this is quality counter-programming. Um, welcome back to the Reagan Library. And maybe before we get started, I have an important question to ask you. Do you prefer to be called General or Mr. Secretary, or what do you prefer? I left all those titles uh, behind, behind Fred in Washington, D.C., so I, I prefer Jim. Jim, okay. Well, I know there's one that you don't like, and the, the initials are MD, so I, I won't use that one tonight. That's good, unless you have your life insurance built up. <laughs> um, your book is called Call Sign Chaos, but what many people don't know is that that was your call sign in the military. Can you share with us how a measured, disciplined, thoughtful person like you got a call sign chaos? First, I'd challenge what you just said about me being measured and thoughtful and disciplined. Um, but I, I would just tell you that uh, I was a colonel, and like many good ideas, this is another one that came out of California. I was stationed uh, governor out in 29 Palms in the uh, eastern reaches of the state, and I had 7,000 sailors and marines under me, and we're in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and so I had many very good ideas. I classified them as excellent ideas. And uh, I would go down every day, several times a day, to see my operations officer, who had a rather droll sense of humor. He's out of Brooklyn. You know what those people are like. <laughs> and, uh, and I saw, as I was walking out after giving him another great idea, I saw chaos written on his whiteboard. I said, what's that about? And he wouldn't tell me. Uh, and he said, don't worry about it. And of course, right away, you know, our ears always perk up at that point. And I said, um, well, I waterboarded him. Uh, <laughs> and I got it out of him. <clears throat> but basically, it was uh, my irreverent troops, very tongue-in-cheek, very irreverent little guys saying, the colonel has another outstanding suggestion. 
they didn't think they were all quite as wise as I thought they were. So I adopted it uh, because I always thought I could get good ideas from the young people. Great. Well, among the major subjects in your book are observations on leadership, on the military, and the world we live in. So maybe we could start with some questions just about leadership. Um, in talking about leadership, you describe the importance of issuing clear orders and communicating directly. What are your tips for making your, yourself unmistakably understood? Well, it's as important when you write out orders, when you give direction. I don't care if you're a football coach or a business leader or a military leader, that you use as few words as possible, that they be very descriptive, and that you're clear in your mind what you want done. What is the aim? And sometimes I'd say that. My aim is because what I was trying to do was get the, the idea out there that I wanted to carry out. And then I would tell them the end state. Here's what it looks like when, when we're done working together, all of us, on this, on this mission. And then I would wander around and I'd talk to them, all the units. I'd, I'd stand there and make them ask me questions. I wouldn't leave till they asked me questions. So right down to the 18-year-old sailors and Marines, they knew what we were all going to try to do. And what I was doing was trying to gain their ownership of the mission so they all felt important and that everything relied on all of us doing the best we could. The good thing was at that point, I trusted them because I knew them and I would take my hands off the steering wheel. And at that point, I, they were going to be making decisions. I delegated decisions down below and you can do that if you're clear. I call it writing your end state so clearly that it would pass a Jesuit's level of analysis. And uh, I'm not a Jesuit, uh, they scare me. Uh, <clears throat> but, but I wanted it to be that rigorous because when you do it that way, you really can turn it over to very, very young people because they know what you want and unleash their initiative and aggressiveness. And at that point, everyone's surging forward when you need to be everybody pulling your chair. In the book, you talk about many qualities of leadership, one of which is concern for those on the front line. And that's a valuable lesson for all of us, whatever business or endeavor we're in. When and how did you first realize how essential this is for a good leader? Well, it, it's built into you, ladies and gentlemen, in the Marine Corps, uh, whether you're a, a fighter pilot in the air, or you're a supply man or an artilleryman, everybody cares about the Lance Corporal who's going to close in on the enemy at the top of the hill or inside that building. And so you're brought up on this. It, it becomes part of just your, you, you accept it every day without even thinking about it because it's so ingrained. But also being an infantry officer where you really rely on your young NCOs for your own success, you never, that formative experience uh, never leaves you. Even the higher up you go, I can still remember the names of guys in my first infantry platoon. I was 21 years old, and I'll just tell you, that was in the last millennium, I'm so old now. <clears throat> but you, those formative experiences and getting to know people as well, or even better than you know your own brothers under conditions where you all have the same level of comfort, you're all laying in the mud together, uh, that stays with you forever, that formative experience. It's one of the reasons we, the, we have a closed labor system you know, you've got to be in the military to make captain. You've got to be in the captain to make major because we need those formative experiences. You need to remember who's actually going to be putting their lives on the line. And it even helped me uh, when I was Secretary of Defense. 
Throughout your book, you talk about the need to, to keep cool under fire. How have you developed this ability? You know, that it sounds, uh, it sounds difficult, and it's not that you don't get scared, of course. Uh, it happens. Uh, you, can, you can be so scared you won't taste for three days. You don't have to somebody shoots at you. But it, you also develop kind of this, uh, a little, not fatalism, but you develop a, a sense of, of gung-ho or high spirits, rambunctiousness. And, and it is kind of fun to get shot at and missed, you know. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, it makes you really enjoy life the next day, you know. Um, but I think it, it really comes down to hard, rigorous training on NCOs who aren't there to help you through your midlife crisis, you know. They're going to make you do what you have to do. They're not impressed uh, by, by halfway measures. Uh, I'll give you the example. As an officer candidate, uh, they would, you would compete with other platoons going through the obstacle course. And on one occasion, those things came easily to me, and I was obviously way out in front of the person from the other platoon. So, you know, I just keeping a glance on him and went up the rope finally at the end and tapped the rope, and you dropped down, and, you know, I knew I'd won. One, one for the team and everything. And my platoon sergeant, uh, the drill instructor, so to speak, was standing over me and he was yelling and screaming. And basically, he had determined I was a communist sent in to infiltrate and destroy the Marine Corps. <clears throat> the reason was, uh, he said, you only gave 99%. And he said, I'm gonna kill you if you do that again. And he was big enough to do it. Uh, my palms are sweating right now as I recall it. <laughs> But I learned that it was a Marine Corps that loved it if you gave 100% commitment, and they were totally dissatisfied at 99%. And now I was being introduced to what an elite force is. It's not because we're elite, because we have a nice uniform of what the Marines did in World War II. It's what everyone has to do every day to keep it that way. And that sort of training removes the fear from you to a high degree, that and the love of your fellow Marines, and you're not going to let them go forward when it's a tough day without being beside them. You mentioned uh, that you've had many occasions we have to quickly sum up people and make rapid assessments of yeah. their character. What do you look for? Yeah, I, I assume I can trust people. Now, once in a while, people will let you down. Uh, as I sometimes used to tell officers who were shocked that someone had let them down on trust, I'd say, look, even Jesus of Nazareth had one out of 12 go to mud on him, okay? <laughs> so, so don't get all worked up about this. He had a good selection system, too. Didn't work out all that good, you know? But what you had to do, uh, you had to find people who could embrace the idea of rewarding initiative and aggressiveness. Not mindless aggressiveness, but to really carry out anything. You know, to go full bore through that obstacle course, no matter what that obstacle course was composed of. I would... I would almost in the Marines, because it's such a national treasure, and the U.S. military in general, uh, each of the services have different cultures, but I respect them all. The only thing I watched out for was if somebody did not have humility and you were considering them for a leadership position. Because if they didn't have humility, I wouldn't even waste time coaching them. I mean, and really, that's what you are as a military officer. You're a coach 99% of the time. I could command a quarter million troops late in my career with a couple minutes a day of signing orders. The rest of the time I was coaching. Now then I'm coaching admirals and generals, but you're coaching all the time. But if someone doesn't have humility, ladies and gentlemen, I, you know, I, there's not much you can do for them. You know, I, I just don't put them into the position knowing they probably won't breed the affection from their troops 
that they need to breed. Could you share with us, is there anyone you have misjudged for better or worse? Well, you know, there, there's always, you know, uh, disappointments at times. Uh, but sometimes people hit their, their limit. And it can be a moral limit. It can be an ethical limit. It can be something that they just can't do. And you have to be wise enough when, you make, when you're made a leader to maintain a firing squad or an evacuation squad. You know this person's in over their head and you move them to where they can be used. And it happens, uh, I, I think that it happens very seldom because of the selection process of the Marines and because of the training, but certainly it happens sometimes. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the need for a mission to have a clear end state. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about why that's important and specifically in your experience, where has the U.S. failed in yeah. not having a clear end state? Yeah, you know, we went into Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, and we can say whose responsibility it was. Was it State Department? Was it the Defense Department? Was it USAID? But we did not have a clear understanding based on the culture, political culture, cultural culture, you know, in other words, their historic background of what we were going to do as uh, once we took it down. I had no doubt that we could take it down. The, the, their military, we could unseat Saddam. But we, my Marines got to Baghdad and they pulled a statue down and in strategic terms, not tactical necessarily, the Marines knew what to do, the sailors, the soldiers knew what to do, but in strategic terms, we looked around basically as a country back in Washington and all and said, now what do we do? And that should not have happened. When you send young people into a fight, when you write your intent, you have your aim very clearly stated and the end state. This is an example of what you have to embrace. And anything short of that, uh, we have to be very, very self-critical about because people have their lives disrupted, uh, destroyed at times uh, over this story. A very grave decision when you go to war. And today, <clears throat> what do you think the American people want as an end state for our, our foreign policy? Well, we're having a big debate right now in the country about foreign policy and America's role. But I think that we have to be informed by the greatest generation coming home from World War II. Why do I say that? Think of what they'd been through. The Great Depression, many of them were so skinny that when they got drafted, we had to fatten them up just to get them to begin basic training. They were, they were basically, uh, they hadn't had proper nutrition in their youth. Uh, it became a national security problem. And as you go through something like that and lose hundreds of thousands of young Americans and other countries lost millions. They came out of that experience and they said, it's a crummy world, but whether you like it or not, we're part of it. We're gonna have to deal with it. The idea of, of unilateralism by America, which we'd tried isolationism even uh, after World War I had not paid off. It gotten us into a war and when uh, Winston Churchill was asked midway in World War II, it wasn't called World War II during World War II. There was the Great War, World War I, then there was this great big war going on. And a newsman asked him, Winston Churchill, he said, what, do you, what are we going to call this war in history? And without a moment's hesitation, Churchill said, the unnecessary war. Think of that, tens of millions killed and all that went wrong out of that war. And it was not necessary, according to a statesman who was there at the, at the time. And so I think we have to look at America's role in the world 
<clears throat> without being at all naive, without losing sight of why did the greatest generation become the greatest generation? It wasn't just that they destroyed fascism, it was they built a world in which America's values at least were out there for others to see and aspire to. I think we cannot lose sight of what they did and what President Reagan and George Shultz did as Secretary of State to represent those values during his administration. You mentioned, um, <laughs> you mentioned in the book, while preparing for your Senate confirmation hearings, you were, quote, struck by the degree to which our competitive military edge was eroding, including our technological advantage. Do you think our technological edge has improved since then? Yeah, what happened, ladies and gentlemen, I'd spent most of, since 9-11, uh, 2001, I'd spent most of it focused on the Middle East. And actually, since 1979, I'd spent a lot of time focused on the Middle East, sailing out there, studying there, uh, fighting there, that sort of thing. Uh, had I known in 1979 I was going to spend most of the rest of my life out there, I probably would have found a different line of work, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, so when I was the Central Command commander, for example, had about 200,000 U.S. troops, about 50,000 Allied troops under the direction of the Central Command, <clears throat> I just remember um, I would get everything I needed. If I called the Chief of Naval Operations and say, here's what I'm going to need, He'd say, okay, I got it, and then I'd call the chairman and ask for it, and certainly, hey, guess what? The chief of naval operations says the ships are ready to sail. Um, I'd do the same thing with the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, Coast Guard, and all. I didn't realize while I was fighting in the Middle East how much the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard were stripping from their budgets, from what they were doing elsewhere in the world. It, it, you know, I, I had enough problems to not to try and pick up all the others. And so I come in as Secretary of Defense, and I'm looking at the world now in a much more holistic way, and I was struck by it. I think we've made a lot of progress on closing those gaps with the record-breaking budgets uh, that we've had for the last two and a half years. Uh, I will point out that the last budget, again record-breaking in December, was passed with 87% of the Republicans and Democrat congressmen and congresswomen and senators voting for it. So on your worst day, when you're wondering, you know, 3,000 miles from here, can they ever get together and work together on anything? Yes, the Congress can, okay? They can do it. We are narrowing uh, or we're expanding the competitive gap once again. Will it be in time? I don't know. Uh, we're working on hypersonics and artificial intelligence and all these things that we're going to need, upgrading our cyber and our space capabilities, reorganizing some like space. But, you know, we lost a lot of time over the last 15 years or so, 20 years. We lost a lot of time. You're not going to make up for that with a couple of years of budget, you know, of great budget. So the, the re it's on the right trajectory. It's going fast and it's picking up speed as the scientists and all start working together again but it's still a challenge. Military procurement's a big part of that conversation. Um, in addition to the long-established large companies that have traditionally been supplying uh, weapons of war, do you think there should be a greater, war, a, a greater role for startups, including Silicon Valley? Yeah, uh, there, there has to be because we are now going into new domains. We fought on this planet for a couple thousand years on land and sea. <clears throat> the last hundred years we began fighting in the air and in the last 10 years, we added cyber domain and space. 
Uh, we are going to have to uh, harvest the fruits of Silicon Valley and other uh, companies, large, many of them here on the West Coast, by the way, and we're going to have to do it in a way that brings them on board in a productive but rapid style. Uh, we can't have this going with business as usual. So I, I'd say yes, and we are doing it. My predecessor uh, at Secretary of Defense, Secretary Ash Carter, under the Obama administration, had established a link, a, a, a group of military, reserve, and, and active duty people in Silicon Valley. It was called the Defense uh, Innovative Unit Experimental. In other words, we're going to try this out, see if it works. And I came in. Uh, of course, I owed it to all of you to look at this. Was this the right kind of thing to do? And I made only one change. I said, it's no longer an experiment. It's permanent. DIU is there in Silicon Valley harvesting this, this radical thinking that's coming out of there, these new technologies, and we've got to continue this. Great. Um, in your book, in evaluating some of the early tactical mistakes of Operation Iraqi Freedom, mm -hmm. you pointed to errors made by military leaders on the ground. But you go on to say that President Bush was right to defer to the judgment of the generals as a military commander. Mm -hmm. How does a good leader know when the time has come to stop yeah. deferring to a subordinate? What's the tipping point? Yeah. In the Marines, we have something. We, we don't like command and control. It implies too much restraint, too much mother may I to the folks down below. We like command and feedback. Again, that clear intent, and the commander stays on the battlefield or they are good feedback loops if you're remote. Like I had 23,000 sailors and Marines. I wasn't going to see them all every day. So there had to be some reports coming back into me. And you have to decide what it is that you want to look at. In the president's case, he is the elected commander in chief of our military. We elect our commander in chief. We have to remember that. Whoever we elect, we need to think when we put that X in the box, this is the person who's going to command our military. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, kept changing generals, as you know, for the first couple years of the war until he found ones that he really trusted. In this case, I think that the president should not get into tactical decisions because as they get into tactical decisions, the strategic decisions are not going to be given the same level of attention, and those have got to be gotten right, or nothing's going to go right down below because you can't do the wrong strategic thing in the right tactical way and still come out with what you want. You can get into very long and inconclusive wars, if you know what I mean. So what you want to do is make certain there's a division of labor, but there's also an accountability. And that means if the military is not delivering, uh, then you have to remove them. And it, it's, not a, it's not a personality thing, and it's not, a, uh, it's not, a, uh, it's not an insult to anyone, but you're held accountable. Uh, for delivering results. You don't do better by going down and trying to do a lower level job, is my point, Fred, and leave the other one undone. And you can't do it all. Nobody, you, you simply, these, these issues are too complex for someone to try and take on the whole thing. On, the, on that point, where do the responsibilities of generals begin and end? And where does a president's responsibility for military success or failure begin and end? Well, the president is responsible for the decision and the overall conduct of the war. I'll give you an example. World War II, the U.S. military, smarting from the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, wanted to make uh, Japan the primary target for World War II. And President Roosevelt said, 
There's Germany's the country that we have to beat first. He reversed the military assessment because politically we could not allow England to fall. We had to keep England in the war because the axis was too strong and if we lost England, it'd be 10 years before we had enough opportunities close to Europe to launch a campaign against the Germans. So they have to make, the presidents have to make the political and the strategic decision. And all strategy is, don't let the word blow, you know, kind of seem like something real arcane. It's not, it's setting priorities. That's all you do, any strategy. It's setting priorities. He needs to set those priorities and then the generals owe the military factors. And what does that mean? You walk in, for example, to the Situation Room as a four-star, as I did many times, and you would bring, you know, political leaders are generally elected for human aspirations. You know, we all want, you know, health care for the country. We want our kids to go to school. We want, we want safety in the country, that sort of thing. Then along comes this irritating world out there that doesn't comport itself to our idea. And when that comes up, it can lead to, it can lead to fighting. And so what you do is you take the human aspirations of the political leaders and the military leaders have to bring in war's grim realities and we've got to bring those home. And once you've explained the military factors, then it's up to the president to decide, you know, the old guns and butter decisions, you know, how much are we gonna spend on domestic and, and the war? What's our level of effort going to be in the war? And then as the military person, you carry that out. You keep the faith. You, you gave your best advice. They may not have bought all of it, but you carry out the orders to the best of your ability. You mentioned a little earlier George Shultz, who was President Reagan's Secretary of State. Um, he compared, George Shultz compared foreign affairs to gardening. And he said, quote, gardening is something you have to do if you're going to be effective in foreign affairs. <clears throat> Come around reasonably frequently and get rid of the weeds before they get too big. How do you think the U.S. has been doing at gardening lately? Um, well, first of all, I cannot imagine a better analogy than what Secretary Schultz used. Uh, for one thing, he's a Marine, you know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but my point is, George Schultz was one of the, those members of the greatest generation. He fought in the Pacific, which was a vicious campaign, got out of the Marines as a major. And his view, I think, is, is uh, it is so reinforced by history to say in some cases there is a black and white answer to complex problems. There's not always, but in this case, I believe there is. They came out, what did his generation actually do to create that garden? They set up the United Nations. Remember the United Nations, the combined nations were the ones that defeated fascism. And then with the Marshall Plan, they, with an outstretched hand in many cases to, to countries that had fought against us, we offered to bring in three years after the, what the Nazis had done in the Holocaust, after the vicious fighting in the, in, against the Japanese and the, well, the way they treated our president. Three years later, we were offering to bring them back on their feet. A young graduate student named Henry Kissinger went to Missouri and interviewed President Truman and asked him what he was proudest of in the 1950s, that long after he'd retired as president, what he was proudest of, and he said, that we whipped the fascists and then we welcomed them back into the community of nations. Think of what we did as a country. We also set up Bretton Woods and what we were doing there, this was the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and we told people, 
you know, if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling like everything's going terribly and the country's economy is falling, it was basically lenders of last resort, investors of last resort. In other words, you didn't have to turn to a bald-headed fat fascist named Mussolini to get your help. You could turn to the IMF for the World Bank. And he put all this together. And then one day I'm sitting in the Australian ambassador's backyard for lunch. When I was a four-star, I, I was a NATO Supreme Allied Commander, and Australia keeps a very close eye on NATO because we're like-minded nations, you know, democracies. And he said, you know, America made the single most self-sacrificial pledge in world history after World War II. And I think I know something about history, and I'm thinking, Marshall Plan or, you know, what, what was this thing? And he said, after World War II, you could have said, that's twice, Europe. Twice in 25 years, you've dragged us into a war, tens of millions dead. We're done with you. We're going to go for markets in Asia and Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. We've got nothing more to do. You're on your own. He said, instead, your country set up NATO. Remember, it was set up to keep the group of Soviet forces, Germany, out of Europe. It was to keep the Western democracies alive. And you pledged 100 million dead Americans in a nuclear war to protect Europe. And it took a foreigner, sometimes you can learn a lot about your country through a foreigner's eyes, can't you? And it took them to remind us what our role was in the world in those days. And we took that risk and look at Europe today. It's no longer bomb flat, <clears throat> vibrant democracies, <clears throat> that sort of thing. If we don't tend that garden, we can go back and read what happened after World War I and we can see the same slipshod way that Churchill will be proven right again about an unnecessary war. So I, I really believe in, in keeping the weeds out of the garden. If we fail, if America fails at gardening, who do you believe will fill the void? You can't tell who would fill the void, but the Western democracies right now, not just America, have challenges, and it would probably be a country that can act faster, and it would have to be a large nation. So I'll leave it to your imagination. <clears throat> but it would not necessarily be one that believes in the dignity of human beings, uh, the rule of law, and that sort of thing. Authoritarian nations feel one way toward the world. That's their world outlook. And if you want to see how China looks at the world right now, look at how they treat Hong Kong uh, here on the very evening that we're gathered here at the library. And they may say this is an internal matter, I would beg to differ. They came to America twice. I think it was in the 1980s or 90s. I, I can't remember the timing on it. Twice, and they wanted our support for Hong Kong being returned to Chinese, you know, part of the colonial legacy. It, 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 it should be with China. And they said they would have one state with two systems. And this extradition law that caused this latest fighting here that is not two systems where anybody they don't like in Hong Kong can be extradited to China. That is a violation of what they said with us. And so those kind of uh, stepping into vacuum, those kind of actions are indicative of what could happen if we decide to retreat from the world stage. By we, I don't mean us doing something alone. Condoleezza Rice used to say, uh, we do things with our allies, not to our allies. So working with our allies the democracies are still united and strong when we want to be. You mentioned Hong Kong. Should the United States play a role in the current situation in Hong Kong? I wouldn't be at all hesitant to stand up for what the uh, 
the folks there are demonstrating about and say we're with you. It doesn't mean we're making a military commitment. We should be unambiguous about where we stand on values. Part of President Reagan's enduring legacy is the collapse of the Soviet Union, which you mentioned a moment ago. From what you saw in your time at NATO, is the threat of conflict in Europe a thing of the past? No. Um, and all you have to do is look at tonight in Georgia. There are Russian troops on Georgian territory. Uh, they violated international boundaries for the first time since World War II with military forces in Europe. And then you look at the Ukraine, or uh, we'll start with Crimea and, and then the Donuts Basin, Eastern Ukraine. And what we're looking at right there is a Russia that is not uh, living by the rules. That's the bottom line. Uh, they've been cavalier out of Moscow talking about the use of nuclear weapons in a way that none of their predecessors talked about nuclear weapons and nuking Danish warships in the Baltic and this sort of thing. And again, it, it's where the, the, the democracies need to get together. And remember what George Schultz also said about trust as the coin of the realm when you're, you're having alliances and leading. We're going to have to regain the trust of Europe. Which, which, which is lacking right now. More from a Reagan Forum featuring Secretary James Mattis after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan Forum featuring Secretary James Mattis. Um, talking about another area, one constant theme across your... This is starting to feel a little bit like waterboarding, Fred, you know, like, <laughs> Do you want a sip of water? Yeah, if you'll have some. If it was vodka, it'd be a better answer. Um, one constant theme across your entire military career is the same threat that President Reagan faced when he came into office, and that is a hostile Iran. Seven presidents have had to contend with this problem, and so far, no one has been able to resolve it. What is it about Iran that makes that situation so difficult to resolve? Well, it depends on how you, how you uh, define resolve. Uh, what we have got to do is recognize Iran for what it is. It is a revolutionary regime. And I, here I want to really emphasize one point that we should always keep in mind. Our problem is not the Iranian people. The Iranian people are not the problem in this. They are held hostage uh, by a political system that has got uh, a regime that, can, that believes the only way they can stay in power is to stay revolutionary, to be committed to the destruction of Israel, to be committed to disrupting or destroying America. I mean, they've got delusions of grandeur, you know? But the problem then is we try to deal with them as a nation state. And that's hard to do. We have to deal with them as a nation state, otherwise we can't hold them accountable for what they're doing. But part of the challenge is that we have other diplomatic tools besides regime change and economic sanctions 
but it seems to be all we're using anymore. I mean, we got along for many, many years uh, with using di diplomats, using a host of what I would call traditional diplomatic tools. But clearly, whatever we're going to do with Iran, to be successful, it must be international. And we're going to have to tend the garden. We're going to have to work with other countries that don't believe in the, allowing a nation to support terrorism. On that score, you know, Iran, a couple years ago, five years ago, tried to murder the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. We caught them red-handed. And all we did about it was we took the low-level courier and yanked him off an airplane and locked him up for 20 years or something. We caught them red-handed, and ambassadors are men and women of peace. When the time comes that we don't respect ambassadors enough and potential attacks on our own soil, by the way, it was a truck bomb, car bomb that was going to be detonated in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., outside a crowded restaurant on what are very crowded streets, for those of you who have been there. We'd be having a very different discussion today about Iran if that had happened. But we're going to have to accept Iran for what it is, and we're going to have to deal with Iran internationally. And I think here, you don't solve, you don't resolve the problem. You manage this problem until the internal frictions rot it from the inside out. And believe me, the Iranian young people are not happy with this. The Green Revolution that came up, uh, Hamadani, the, the colonel that was put in charge by Soleimani of beating them down, um, he, uh, he did a very effective job locking the young people up. Most of them were very young university students who wanted freedom. And uh, between beatings and rape and everything else, they broke the back of, of the uh, uprising, of the, or the demonstration. Uh, by the way, he was promoted for that wonderful job of, of basically uh, beating his own people and locking up his own people. Went to Syria, and I'm very sad to report he died there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, um, I, I have to say one thing for the record to, uh, to correct another point. We, we do have an anti-waterboarding policy here at the Reagan Library. <laughs> But I look at this as enhanced interrogation. Is that <laughs> Very good. Very good, Fred. Um, in your experience, which other country's soldiers are the best and most reliable for Americans to fight alongside? No. You know, there is a long list, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're in an age when the size of armies is less important than the skill sets they bring to the battlefield. Uh, now, you still need sizable armies. I mean, it, it, is, a, uh, it is absolutely a labor-intensive thing, uh, issue when you go to war. But I'll give you an example. Uh, we'd set NATO up. Remember, the greatest generation set up NATO, and they set it up to defend Europe. And we made all these plans to ship the US Army over. We had tanks waiting in caves and warehouses for them to jump on under an alert and move to the border of East and West Germany, that sort of thing. First time NATO goes to war is when? When America's attacked on 9-11. First time they go to war. Attack on ones and attack on all. They lived up to it. I'll give you an example. Uh, there are some members of the audience here tonight who are in Task Force 58. There you go. Rest, rest my case. And uh, this is thanks to the US Navy and an admiral who could see a long ways away, Admiral Willie Moore who if it was 150 years ago, he would have had a cutlass in one hand, an eye patch, and a Jolly Roger at the masthead. 
but he asked me one night after, shortly after 9-11, can you get the Marines from the Mediterranean fleet and the Pacific fleet together and move against Kandahar, the spiritual home, because our CIA and our special forces are fighting them up north, but they're gonna start reinforcing as they fall back their spiritual home. And I said, yep, I can do that. So I went in to fight there, and within weeks, weeks, we have, we're joined by forces from Canada and the United Kingdom, Germany and Norway, Jordan and Turkey, New Zealand, Australia. I'd go around at night and I'd talk to their soldiers, you know, just on the, on the perimeter, because they all, we, we, we were the senior headquarters in there, and say, why are you here? Eventually, by the way, it grew to 49 nations alongside us there, some of whom have lost more boys per capita fighting the enemy that attacked us on 9-11. And they'd say it's because we have the same values. They didn't even say interest. In some ways, it might have been in their interest not to come with us. Don't attract attention, the terrorists might come after our capital. You know, this sort of thing. They didn't do it, look at it that way. We had all of those countries there. Uh, we have seen great soldiers, courageous, skilled soldiers from many countries. <clears throat> but at the same time, uh, there is something about the U.S. soldier in the field, the U.S. Navy at sea, that brings a lot of confidence to other people. In other words, we can do a little something here. I'll give you an example. Right now, the French-led effort against Boko Haram in North Africa, the Lake Chad region, has got probably around seven to 8,000 of their elite troops, French Foreign Legion, Airborne, French Marines. We provide a couple thousands of troops to support the French-led supporting effort, and out of that comes well over 70,000 African troops from the nations they're trying to fight. In other words, we invest some of our troops and you pick up the, the strength of others. You get us, you get people who know the local terrain, the local customs, the culture, who's in charge in this village, how do you deal with the head man here versus the veterinarian there. The veterinarian is very important in that region, something that wouldn't naturally come to one of us and all. And so you put all that together and you find there are any numbers of these folks that have good troops to bring in. In fact, I would often caution when I had U.S. Central Command, U.S. Central Command, the central region, you know, in the Middle East, South Central Asia, and I'd remind the American officers because we had 77 nations represented in U.S. Central Command that not all the good ideas come from the country with the most aircraft carriers. So just get over it and pick up good ideas from all. There's a lot of people out there we can fight with. Let me ask you the other side of that question. Which soldiers from which country would you least want to fight against? <clears throat> least want to fight against? Yeah. Well, I'm not worried about anybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm, I'm not being cavalier. It's just that uh, the skill and the technology and the ferocity of our troops when they close in with the enemy <clears throat> is, is, is something that reminds us that free men and women can fight like the Dickens when we have to. And we should be very, very careful when we take the grave decision to go to war because we're going to lose some of these beautiful troops. But if it's something worth fighting, you need to go in and give them every advantage that we can give them and make sure that the country's with them all the way along. And I think this is an area 
<clears throat> that uh, you know, we have to remember a national treasure like the military should only be used when other options have failed, frankly. The National Security Advisor's position came open this week. <laughs> would you urge a military yes. general, if a military general was offered the position, would you urge him to take it? Yeah, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I was raised by the greatest generation. Uh, certain values, maybe it's the way I was raised. I think a lot of people were raised this way. When the President of the United States, Republican or Democrat, male or female, when they ask you to do something, so long as you feel you're prepared for it, uh, you need to go in and do it. And if you say, well, I'm not really fully aligned with the President, <clears throat> okay, that's fine. Then bring your values in and make certain that there's no, not only one, one slice of America there. But I believe that when the president asks anyone, military person or anyone else, they need to do it. You mentioned earlier, and um, <coughs> you mentioned a moment ago, and also in your book, <coughs> that trust <coughs> is the coin of the realm in <coughs> any organization. Mm -hmm. How would you assess the level of trust among the people who serve in government today? <coughs> well, uh, there, you know, government is, is a murky, murky process. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes messy when you're doing real stuff, you know, you're not doing it in the classroom. There's arguments, there's passion. You try to make it a very um, quantitative decision to the degree you can, and then apply non-quantitative thinking once you've quantified maybe five or 10% of the problem or 50%. Uh, but there just comes a point where you've got to be able to work together. Uh, I worked for Secretary Bob Gates when I was a four-star, and he was a Secretary of Defense under both President Bush and President Obama. And he used to say there is no substitute for trust at the high level of government. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. I went, uh, went to Washington, D.C. It was right after Christmas when I was told the President had nominated me for confirmation for, as SecDef. So I went there on December 28th, got to DC, threw my bags in my hotel room, and I saw on TV that there was something about the Secretary of State designate Rex Tillerson had been spotted at the airport on the local news station. You know, in Washington DC, that's a big deal, you know? <clears throat> and so I called around, found his hotel, and I got him, and I said, hey, I've never met you before, but I'm here for the same reason you are to get confirmed. Why don't we have dinner tonight? And uh, Rex Tillerson and I met in a back of a little restaurant, two old guys sitting in a corner. And uh, we're talking, getting to know each other. You know, he's from Texas, Boy Scout, Eagle Scout. I mean, you know, oil man, you know, you get the picture. Um, I was, I'd been a Marine, you know, we're talking things over. And as we went on, you know, I said at one point, you know, Rex, I said, for a lot of my career, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense didn't get along. And that was not good. That was, that was not good for the country. <clears throat> and I said, I believe we've militarized our foreign policy over the last 20 years, the late 90s into the uh, 2000s. And I said, I think you need to be in the driver's seat of foreign policy. I will give you the military factors. I will be unrelenting in giving those to you. But I don't want the White House to have to sort it out between us. I want you and I to sort it out between us and to build the trust and we got walk into the situation room together. And he didn't have to say anything. He just reached over, took my hand, we shook on it, 
and from then on, when we were both in town, which was often, every week we had breakfast together. We'd talk two, three times a week on the phone. I'd always make certain that he was leading on the foreign policy. I didn't want it. I don't think it's healthy for our country. I don't want it to be <clears throat> just because the CIA and the military departments are organized for competition. I didn't want it to be that things seemed to default down to a military resolution. We're a lot stronger than that as a country. And it worked very, very well. When Secretary Tillerson, I was sad to see him leave. I told the President that. But I also, we continued that with Secretary uh, Pompeo, and we continued that sort of rapport. So there's no substitute for, for uh, trust, and I think you just have to build it, and you build it the old-fashioned way. You just sit down and talk together. This next question, this question is from Lorraine Anderson, who's in the audience, and she writes, my son met you in Yemen. It was during Benghazi. Do you remember a six foot eight Marine? And she goes on to say, I hope so, because he named his firstborn Mattis. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I remember, I remember the man. I was looking up at him. Uh, but <clears throat> that was, it was a tough place <clears throat> that her son was in because the embassy there is ringed by apartment buildings, high-rise apartment buildings all around it. Uh, but after one look at that lad, I knew the embassy was going to be safe. <laughs> but I'm, I'm honored by the family and the name. Um, having, served in, <laughs> yeah, having served both in the cabinet and in the Marine Corps, what's the difference between being a leader in the government versus being a leader in the military? Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about leadership and most of the same uh, issues as far as how you build teamwork, how you create ownership, how you uh, help people. Going back to George Washington's way of leading, which was listen, really listen, learn, help, then lead. That it, was, it was very monotonous, but you see him time after time employ that strategy. So I think that the biggest difference was where at one time I would give my advice as a four-star or three-star up to the civilian leaders <clears throat> once I'd gotten to that level. Now I had to make the decision on what the policy recommendation should be. Much of the policy, once we were engaged, was left in my hands. So what I did <clears throat> was I wrote out a question to myself at my stand-up desk or about twice a week, and more often if there was an emergent situation, I had to sign the deployment orders, and they would be dozens of them. And remember, civilian control of the military, ladies and gentlemen, one of the, one of the ways that's manifested is every time troops deploy overseas, the civilian secretary has signed those orders, not the military. Again, we have a civilian-controlled military. So I put this, this question, I said, it's something like this. Does this deployment, does this deployment, uh, Provide, sufficient, provide sufficiently for the well-being of the American people to put these troops in a position to die. Not in harm's way, not to be injured or possibly killed, to die. And I, I just kept it there because something about writing something down in your own longhand and just scotch taping it to the desk and you just glance over at it. You never, you, I didn't want it to become routine because you could sign 30 of these in a week. You know, you're sending people to the Aleutians or Diego Garcia or the Middle East or Europe. 
<clears throat> but I always wanted to say that it had to contribute sufficiently to the well-being of the American people that I could look a gold star mother or father and widow in the, in the eye and say it was worth it. That's the biggest difference. In the epilogue of your book, you share concerns about a country coming apart. And you write, quote, it's dividing into hostile tribes, cheering against each other, fueled by emotion and a mutual disdain that jeopardizes our future. What has changed in our culture and politics to cause this? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I love the Constitution and a Declaration. I mean, I, I just, I enjoy reading it. I read it again every so often, one of them, and I find something new every time I read it. <clears throat> and I understand that when you're in an election season, I'm gonna say, Fred, if we're running against each other, uh, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> you're gonna turn around and say no, and then I'm gonna say, I'm smart and you're dumb. Okay, it's not real civil at times, but hey, welcome to democracy. And I'm okay in an election, because what are we trying to do? We're trying to divide you into the ones who'll vote for me versus the ones who vote for him, and it probably it'll never be 100%, so you're, you're, you're trying to get the ones in the middle to come over. In this group, you would get 100%, <clears throat> I can assure you. I don't know, I don't know. Um, you know. Nobody's right all the time. Even the person I disagree with 100% is right on some things. I try to remember that. However, what's, you asked what has changed, what has gone wrong. And I don't think we're coming out of electioneering. We just keep staying in these, these locations of count. And it used to be that we would roll up our sleeves and then work together. And then we'd go out after a good, strong argument where we're very hard on the issues even then, but we weren't hard on each other. Can we go out and we go to church together, go to synagogue together, we go to the saloon together, we go to eat dinner together, our families would get together. Now it's like we're actually drawing lines within our families and within our communities by who they vote for. Where did that come from? And I think that we've got, we, you know, governing, <clears throat> governing is not about division. Elections are about division and should be about division. And, we, and they don't have to be civil. And the, and the media does not have to be right. They don't have to be accurate. They don't have to be fair to do their job of keeping us all on our toes. You know, I, I hope they're right most of the time. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see that, but it doesn't have to be that way. This is a democracy. It's raucous at times. But where did we get, you know, Senator Vandenberg was asked, right wing Republican out of Michigan, <clears throat> back in the late 40s, early 50s, how could you work with that terrible Democrat, President Truman? And he said, politics stops at the water's edge. And he was talking about protecting the country. In other words, here was a guy who was a strong believer in free markets and other things, and he didn't think Truman stood on all those things, yet he would work with them. Where are we working with each other now? You know, Abraham Lincoln, 1858, addressing the Young Men's Lyceum. This is before he's ever president. And he says, you know, talking to the people there at the Lyceum, <clears throat> an interesting word in itself, he says, <clears throat> he says, all the armies of Asia and Europe and Africa, even led by a Bonaparte, you know, Napoleon had just died a couple decades before, brilliant military leader, said none, even none, all combined against us could never cross the Blue Ridge Mountains. They could never get a drink of water out of the Ohio River. 
because free men, free women, they're, they're just not going to get there. That's all there is to it. He said, if we're to die, if this nation, if this experiment that you and I call America is going to die, it'll die by suicide. Interesting comment from the young Abraham Lincoln years before the war has shown his character. He's already defined what it is that could ruin this whole dream for our next generation. Something for us to think about, I think. Your answer sets up a question from Scott Murphy, <clears throat> who writes, my son Owen Murphy served under General Mattis in Iraq. He thought so much of him that he felt he should run to be our next <clears throat> president after President Trump. Have you ever considered running for a political office? No. <laughs> but thanks, Mr. Murphy. <laughs> um, in your book, you talk about how digital technology in, welfare, in warfare can cause misinformation to multiply and to worsen confusion instead of alleviating it. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as a risk to our, our broader society, and is social media contributing to this? I think it amplifies some of the things I was talking about earlier about why we're staying frozen in division instead of working in, in uni, unison to do something good for the next generation. Uh, I, I, somehow, what we thought was going to enable the human interface and it was all going to work well, which it has done a lot of good for. I mean, uh, you know, all of us have these little things, you know, in our pockets anymore. Uh, we're allowed to uh, relate to people half a world away. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good to these things, but there's a double-edged sword. And I think that it has been something that's helped freeze us into these offending camps, you know, corrosive to each other and unwilling to look at what we share, the ground we share, and it's all about division. So it worries me a great deal uh, about how it's being used and all especially in a country where perhaps the education system could do better about teaching civics so that we had, we knew what the common ground was. I don't think the technology is right. In your book, you say that you are aware that our enemies read our words. Mm -hmm. What do you want our enemies to take from call sign chaos? Well, it, I, I think the most important thing, you go back to 9-11, we just had a, obviously an anniversary here, a short couple of days, you know, you, you know what happened over the last week is we, we refused to forget those who died, those almost 3,000 people from 91 countries, by the way, they weren't all Americans. 91 countries had innocent citizens murdered by maniacs who thought that by hurting us they could scare us. And part of the reason we were fighting there right after the, uh, right after the strike, you know, we could have taken more time. We could have taken more time to get all the plans more mature, more troops into the area, the region. So when we went in, there was a lot more of us and all. But we went in right away. And part of it was to make very clear, we don't scare. And I think that, uh, I think as we look at the world right now, I want to make certain that our adversaries know that America still breeds the kind of people who got me out of every jam I got them into. You know what I mean? I mean, I get a lot of credit for things that a very, very, very young people's blood, sweat, and tears earn for me. That's not false modesty at all. Um, <clears throat> and I would just tell you that we owe 
all of you veterans in the room, not just the veterans of the current wars or of the Vietnam War, Korean War, World War II, what you've taught us and what has come down to our troops today is why we can send a message to our adversaries that no matter how bad the fighting gets, it can be no worse than Shiloh. It can be no worse than Bellow Wood or the Battle of the Bulge, no worse than Porkchop Hill. And we stood the test there. I'll give you an example. Uh, we're getting ready to attack uh, a very uh, robust enemy uh, in Iraq in summer of two, or spring of 2004. And I, you know, I've gone down to see the assault battalions and it's about getting close to midnight. It's time for generals to get out of the way. And so I'm falling back with a handful of my radio operators, just half a dozen of us and my aide, <clears throat> get back about a mile's walk to where my vehicles are. And as we were walking by, where one of the assault companies were laying on the ground. They were stripped down, it was a very chilly night. Um, and uh, right, right then, this would be a, a company that moved in before dawn to take out the enemy outpost so the assault battalion could move up to the city. And uh, the enemy made some mischief nearby. And so we, we got down and I checked in with the corporal who was there. He said, yeah, no sweat, sir, we'll take care of it. And, and they did, and everything got quiet. We were just all laying there, and I think the troops thought I'd probably moved on, but I didn't want to move. I wanted to make sure it was over so I didn't attract any more problems for them. And I heard one of the young Marines, young meaning probably 18-year-old Marines, ask the, the older Marine, the corporal, who's probably not even 21 himself, you think Fallujah's going to be real rough in the morning, corporal? And I won't, we've got wonderful ladies here, I'm not gonna give quite the uh, quotation <laughs> in response from the corporal, but he basically said, hush and get some sleep. He said, we took Iwo Jima, Fallujah won't be nothing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he wasn't even a glimmer in his daddy's eye at Iwo Jima time, okay? He, uh, he had in him, though, what the Marines had fought on Iwo Jima and overcome, and he knew it couldn't be worse than that. And that, so to every veteran in here, what our country owes you, wherever you served, whatever you did, is this legacy being handed down. And the most important thing is that we make certain our diplomats always speak from a position of strength. That's the only way we're going to avoid wars that we can avoid and gain the number of allies we need when we do go to war that we crush anybody who wants to take these freedoms away. So to the veterans, I salute you, but for America's role in the world, let's try and keep the, keep the diplomats in the driver's seat, but don't ever leave them alone. Don't ever leave them in a position of weakness. <laughs> we're, we're just about out of time, but I yeah. have two, two final questions I wanted to ask you. My son-in-law, Marine Captain Chris Belair, told me a story about how he and many in his platoon were inspired to serve by a speech you gave in 2014 at the Marine Corps University Foundation. What would you say to someone who has just enlisted or someone who is thinking about enlisting today? All young people should be thinking about doing something for this country. <clears throat> you know, if it's a country good enough to live in, the World War II generation proved it doesn't have to be perfect to fight for it. In other words, we're always committed to getting better. Keep the faith. We're not a, 
We're not a racist nation. We're not a misogynist nation. We're not a nation that's hateful to our fellow Americans, as long as we listen to our better angels. So keep the faith, protect the experiment, but make sure you do something. A country's a little bit like a bank. If you want to get, take something out of it, you need to put something in. And I don't care if you go into the foreign service, the intelligence services, the military service, you go teach in an inner city school or work in the Indian, uh, the Bureau of, of Native American Affairs uh, for education or health, uh, help out in your local community. But there ought to be some kind of way that you put others first. And those are the three words I'd remember. And if you're thinking about joining the military, uh, you'll never regret it. It'll be some of the best days and some of the worst days of your life, but you'll know you're really living. Right. Uh, and the final question, as I mentioned earlier, we we're so happy to be able to welcome you back to the Reagan Library. And when you were here last, you said, we are Americans. We are not spectators in the arc of history. We make history. Can you conclude by sharing your thoughts about America's place in the world? Yeah, it, it's a story I often tell, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> out uh, during these difficult months in the Anbar province when I was a two-star. There were about, there were 29 sailors and Marines who went everywhere I went. They were vehicle drivers, gunners, Navy corpsmen, radio operators, aide-de-camp. And over a period of four months, 17 of those 29 lads were killed or wounded around me. It was a very difficult time, uh, and I wasn't in the tough fighting. The, you know, I w I'm a general. I'm, I'm not in the front line of that sort of thing. And we pulled in one night out in the western Euphrates River Valley where there was a second lieutenant, probably no more than a year or two out of undergraduate education, and his 40-odd sailors and Marines, and their job was to plug a rat line coming straight in from Syria where the foreign fighters are trying to get in to blow Baghdad apart. And so out in the desert, every night, this fight is going on. Uh, so we pull inside his perimeter. We had trouble getting there that day, so we got in very late at night, early in the morning. When the sun came up, we we're inside his perimeter. He comes over to see me and report the usual report. Here's what's going on. Here's, here's what I think's gonna be happening next couple of days. He said, by the way, we caught a guy trying to lay an IED on the road you came in last night. And I said, well, that's kind of personal. <laughs> and he says that he's lived, he's been educated or lived or trained, he said, in both the United Kingdom and Switzerland, and he speaks good English. You want to talk to him? I said, sure. So they brought him over, and obviously it wasn't the best day of his life, you know. <laughs> You know, he's out there whistling, he's digging a hole, he's got his two big artillery rounds, he's got his car battery, and he looks up and there's five guys with automatic rifles standing around him. And at that point he knows his 401k was in deep jeopardy. <laughs> <coughs> so they, they brought him in, and I, I said, uh, they brought him in and we're all sitting on the ground, there's no chairs or anything, and so he sat down, and I said, what are you doing this for? He said, you're Sunni. We're the Marines. We're the only friends you got in this country right now. Why, why are you trying to kill us? And he started going off on one of those rants. You know, oh, you Jews, you Americans, you're here to steal the oil. That hey, give me a break. You know, you're an educated man. You're just going to talk ignorance. Go away. I don't, I don't want to waste my time. So the Marines stepped forward. The guard stepped forward to take him away. And he says, can I sit here for a minute? I said, yeah. Uh, I just sensed he wanted to talk more. And after a couple minutes, he said, you know, I don't like having foreign troops in my country. Well, I respect that. I understand that. 
I wouldn't want that here, you know. So I understand it. So we start talking a little bit, and he wanted, I got him a cup of coffee, and he's shaking pretty bad, so I had to light his cigarette when he asked for one. And I was really nice. I didn't give him my anti-smoking lecture like I'd always give him. <clears throat> I mean, he'd had a bad night. And I thought he, he deserved a cigarette. So we're talking for a bit, and he told me about his family that lives about 10 kilometers away down on the river. Had two daughters. And he, then uh, obviously the conversation's petering out. I got to leave and everything. And he said, uh, I guess I'm going to jail. I said, oh, yeah. You're going to be wearing an orange jumpsuit and living in Abu Ghraib for a good many years for this little stunt. You're lucky you're not dead. And he said, uh, General, do you think if I'm a model prisoner, I could immigrate to America someday? <laughs> now you think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Now America's got two fundamental powers. And one is the power of intimidation. And yes, we need a military that can intimidate, that free people, you will not fight us and enjoy it. I understand that. But we've also got the power of inspiration. And here was a guy who was so hateful of foreign troops in his land, he was trying to kill us. Yet the power of inspiration could reach all the way over to the western Euphrates River Valley and go over that hatred and connect with him. And he would like nothing better than to be in America where his two daughters could have gone to school. He was an educated man. And think how lucky we are that we have two powers there. And let's not forget that we're, we're an inspiration if we just live up to our own better angels. I think that's our role in the world. Secretary Mattis will be back at the Reagan Library on December 7, 2019, when the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute bestows him with our annual Ronald Reagan Peace Through Strength Award. The award, presented annually at the Reagan National Defense Forum since 2013, recognizes those who have applied, with constant purpose, a strategy to strengthen our armed forces, support our military men and women around the world, reinforce our nation's defense systems, and safeguard the lives and interests of the American people. Also receiving the award on December 7th will be the Honorable Sam Nunn, former United States Senator from Georgia. Mattis and Nunn joined previous award recipients, former Vice President Dick Cheney, former Secretaries of State Condoleezza Rice and George Shultz, former Defense Secretaries Ashton Carter, Leon Panetta, and Robert Gates, former Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson, U.S. Representative Adam Smith, Senator Jack Reed, General Jack Keane, and former Senators Carl Levin and John McCain. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast 
featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.